Hey, Bo, I'd like to start our time uh, in the Word Tonight by asking you a question, putting yes. you on the spot. Yes. What is the hardest thing God has ever asked you to do as a Christian? The hardest thing? The hardest thing God has ever asked you to do as a Christian. Um, I would say the first thing, and that was just to give my life to the Lord, just mm. to be fully committed to Christ. Yeah. Um, I think that was the greatest hurdle yeah. in, in my world was um, to simply trust, you know, trust that Jesus um, could provide yeah. um, everything I needed. Yeah. Um, you know, there's so many things in the world that are, you know, just uh, baiting you, uh, yeah. you know, all the time. So to me, that was kind of the probably the biggest hurdle. I think after that, I was... You know, he's been so good. I've just been so thankful, you know, um, that leaning on him, uh, I know he's going to be there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's beautiful. You know, I, I spent some time thinking about that today as, as I was going over uh, Revelation chapter 6. And I, I, true confessions, I would have to say the single hardest thing God has ever asked me to do in the Christian life is forgive. Hmm. I mean, stop and think about that. Of all the things that are heavy on the Lord's mind, the most difficult, I think, at least for me personally, is letting go of bitterness, um, learning how God defines forgiveness, and discovering that in me personally, that really doesn't exist. Mm. I can <laughs> I can work up and I'll forgive you, but I'll never forget it. <laughs> and that's probably as close as I get in my own strength to uh, doing what the Lord called us to do. And uh, you know, I think this is something that is uh, an epidemic among Christians. You know, we say that we forgive. Uh, we say that we're glad that God forgives us. But when it comes to truly forgiving other people from the heart, it's a real challenge. You know, in Matthew 18, uh, I think uh, that difficulty uh, of getting to that place of letting go and forgiving is really illustrated by a time where I think Simon Peter was, uh, was really trying to score some points with Jesus. Now, I remember when I was on staff with uh, Pastor Chuck Smith at Calvary Costa Mesa, and you know, being such a luminary in the, the Jesus movement and in Christian circles. I mean, the guys on the cover of Time magazine, for goodness sake. There were all kinds of people that would kind of come up to him and, and try to say something that they know he'd like, and they'd get tongue-tied. And, and, uh, and on a few of these occasions, you know, I'd be sitting there, and, and this person would end up just kind of babbling and then kind of realizing they were making a fool out of themselves, and they kind of left. And I'd sit there, and I'd look over at Chuck, and Chuck would look at me, and he'd go, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, I, I think one of those experiences where one of the disciples was trying to score some points with Jesus is in Matthew 18. It says, Peter said, came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And uh, I'm sure Peter was thinking, boy, you know, I think, Jesus is really going to be impressed with me because, you know, I mean, the rabbis say that I only have to forgive three times, and I've doubled that. 
And I threw another one on top of that because we got to a nice Bibling number seven times, you know. And Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And obviously what Jesus was getting at there was an infinite number of times. Forgive and keep on forgiving. He, didn't, he wasn't saying 490 times. I mean, I'm sure there's some people. Count, count them down. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> gosh, I'm at 483. I only got seven more times and I can really drop the bomb on that person. No, I don't think that was, that's what he was getting at. But, you know, we struggle, I think with the whole idea of letting go of the bitternesses, of the hurts of the past, especially if those bitternesses and hurts were something that we could look upon and say, I'm justified in holding on to this. I have been hurt. I have been wronged. Uh, evil, if we want to use that word, has been perpetrated against me. And so I have a right, in a sense, to hold on to a lack of forgiveness. And boy, let me tell you, I think as long as you're here on planet Earth, that is going to be a struggle. If we're really honest, we do have people that live rent-free in the back of our minds. And uh, the old resentment thing gets cranked up. Uh, if, if we're in the right place or uh, the, the right moment, or even if a uh, song is played on the radio, boy, all those memories come flooding back. You know, you, you might be saying to yourself, well, yeah, that's all interesting, Scott, but I thought we were in the book of Revelation. I, I, you know, what does this have to do with what we see in Revelation chapter 6? Well, actually a lot. Uh, you know, as if you were with us last week, we got into Revelation chapter 6. Uh, the sealed judgments are going down. Uh, the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth, the, the beautiful worship of Jesus being worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. We talked uh, about how important it is to even, you know, just, just salt that away and remember who God is and remember who Jesus is and how good he's been to us. But he has been found worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. We saw that the scroll, a lot of different debates about what that scroll is. I think probably the best way to look at it is, uh, it is the debt we could never pay, the title deed to planet Earth that we forfeited when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. And now God is purchasing that back, if you will. He's writing this world gone wrong. And as these seals are open, we see these various manifestations of God's judgment taking place. A white horse and him who sat on it had a bow, a crown was given to him, he went out conquering him to conquer. Uh, the world has rejected the true Messiah, and so the world will get the false Messiah. If you don't want what God has for you, uh, you can have something less. Uh, and so the rise of the Antichrist uh, prophesies there. The second seal, uh, the second living creature saying, uh, come and see. I saw a horse fiery red went out, and it was granted him who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another. They, it was given him a great sword. And so after the three and a half years of the false peace of the Antichrist, this boiling pot of fallen human nature on the hot stove of this world, the lid's finally going to blow. And uh, the peace the Antichrist brings isn't real peace because until we have peace in our hearts with God, we can't have peace in our world. The third seal, uh, come and see, I looked in a black horse and he sat on a pair of scales in his hand and this picture of the fact that for the average working grunt, 
after the first three and a half years of prosperity and, and people just feeling like they uh, have never had it better, suddenly the bottom's going to fall out economically and uh, people are going to have to work all day just to buy a loaf of bread. But for those who are in power, those who are connected, they'll still have all their luxury items. So you not only have incredible want for the average person, but you have incredible economic inequality going on, unrighteousness and injustice. This, this, this perfect utopia people were promised isn't going to come to pass. And the fourth seal, come and see, and behold, I saw a pale horse, and the name on him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. And power is given over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Over two billion people mm -hmm. by current measurements are going to die as a result of these various plagues that are going to go on. But then we get to verse 9, and it's fascinating. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were killed as they were, were completed. Mm -hmm. So here you see a very interesting seal being broken. The focus goes off of all the chaos and carnage that's going on on planet Earth. And where is it focusing yeah, in? Yeah, now it's focused on God's people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the big picture of this is that issue of forgiveness, is it not? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and where are these people struggling with a lack of forgiveness? Yeah, well, it's, you know, they were slain. But it's in heaven. Yeah, it's in heaven. <laughs> and it's interesting because when you study the book of, uh, you know, Leviticus and you study the book of Exodus, you know, in Exodus especially, we get the furniture of the tabernacle. Right. And we get uh, the altars, the altar of incense, the, and then there's the sacrificial altar. And, and it's interesting, by the time you get to Leviticus chapter 4, when the sacrifices take place, the priests are told to go into the uh, inner court and sprinkle some of the blood onto the altar of incense. And they are, then they're to come out into the outer court and make sure that they sprinkle it also on the altar of sacrifice on the horns. It was, right. had, both of them had four horns set right. up around, very interesting. Yeah, you had to dip the blood and put it on the horns. And yeah. then they poured out the rest of the blood into the base and the bottom of the altar of sacrifice. Right. And, and so it's kind of interesting, all this blood being poured out underneath the altar. Right. And then here you have in the book of Revelation, and remember Moses said to, uh, or God said to Moses, hey, when you build that tabernacle, you need to build it exactly like I'm telling you. Like exactly. So when Moses came off the mountain, he had architectural plans with them, you know, not just the Ten Commandments, you might know that, but he had a whole blueprint. Yeah, probably out to here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, of what to do. So there's something really specific about this. And the interesting thing is when we get a picture of, of heaven, of, of the throne room of God, we see this altar show up. Yeah. And we see it's interesting, but the souls of those who have been slain are there. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and, and I, it, I, it, I find that very like interesting. Yeah, <laughs> and, and it's interesting how it says uh, that uh, I saw under the altar. You know, the word under there, I think, can be a bit misleading mm -hmm. because, you know, when I used to read that, I used to think it, it kind of reminded me of uh, this uh, comedian who used to be on the old Ed Sullivan show, Senior Winces. And uh, he had like this character, you know, this little uh, hand that would talk and stuff like that. And then he had another one that was in a box. He'd say, it's all right. And then the guy in the box would say, it's all right. And I, and I always kind of thought, you know, the people in the altar, you know, are, are like under the altar. And, you know, you got to open up the lid and they're just underneath that thing. It's all right. It's all right. You know, that's what. But that's not what, what's been taught. What's talking about there is they're not under the altar. They're at the base of the altar. Yeah. And, and there's a couple of things that really jump out at this. You know, when the Bible speaks of altars, you know, we think, uh, you know, going to the altar and I'm going to get married. That's what we think of. We think of like a, a place in a church that's the front of a church. But an altar was a very different thing uh, in the Old Testament. It was, uh, first of all, something that you really didn't build. Uh, you, you, God preferred them to be made out of earth because it was sort of a rejection of the, the hand of man and trying to impress God or the gods as it might be. And, you know, with all the elaborate stuff, God just wanted it simple. And, you know, I mean, it's a whole study in and of itself, but there are really four purposes for an altar. First, an altar was to be a place of remembrance. We, we see in the Old Testament how the individuals where God would reveal something to them or God would answer a prayer, they'd build an altar there uh, to remember what, what God had done. An altar was a place of reconciliation because there you would offer a sacrifice for your sins and be reconciled to God. You know, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so it was this place of reconciliation with God. It was also a, uh, a place of refuge. You know, if you would go to the altar, for instance, in the temple, you could grab onto one of the horns on the altar and even if you'd committed some kind of a capital crime, they couldn't get you as long as you were holding on to the horns of the altar. And, and, but most importantly, the altar was a place of receiving God's personal blessing, his personal touch. It was a place of fellowship yeah. with God. And all of those things were made possible by the sacrifice uh, the sacrificial system that we see, you know, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins and so on. It made the altar a place of connection with God. It made the, the, the call go through, if you will. It made the altar a powerful place. And so we see under the altar, the base of the altar, like you pointed out, where they would pour the blood of the sacrifice down. Where do you find these these martyrs well you find them there you know in this place associated with blood now some will say well it's associated with them dying uh you know laying down their lives for christ and i i guess but i think the bigger picture here is this picture of what makes them right with god why did they do what they did it was because jesus did it first because jesus shed his blood for them, and that was their position, that their 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 access to all of those blessings, that the earthly altar foreshadowed. Yeah, and I've heard people say over the years uh, since I've been saved, like, "Hey, man, make sure you're under the altar." Yeah. And I've heard people use that as like a little reminder yeah. of like, "Hey, make sure you're under the blood of Christ." 
Right. You know, like, you know, Christ is sacrificed on the altar, so to speak. You know, make sure you're underneath that, you yeah. know, that when you look up, you're seeing Jesus. Yeah, you know? and, and, and I mean... That, and it's that place of reconciliation. It's that place of fellowship. Refuge, yeah, that yeah. place of fellowship. And, honor. and what makes it all possible? It's the blood of Christ. Right. That, that's what makes this place valuable. But notice, these individuals have been slain for the word of God and the testimony which they held. Now, it's interesting to me that we see the sealed judgments going down, uh, the Antichrist's, uh, you know, the, the, there's an old saying in business, uh, uh, under-promise and over-deliver, but the secret of failure is over-promise and under-deliver. Mm-hmm. Well, the Antichrist is the original over-promise and under-deliver guy. Uh, you know, all of his peace, all of his prosperity, all of the answers that, that he promised people they would receive by uh, following him as their, their secular Messiah. Don't worry about your spiritual life. Just follow me. I'll solve all your problems externally. It's all fallen apart. So what does he do? He goes, oh, well, I guess I blew it. You know, I, I, it's on me. Buck stops here. Well, if you know anything about politicians in general, they never say that, right? They always find someone else to blame. I mean, even if it was like four administrations ago, if something's going on currently, oh, it was that guy's fault back then. It's not my fault, you see. And that same attitude is going to prevail in the tribulation period. The Antichrist has to find a fall guy, someone to blame for his failures. Well, the only reason that we aren't getting anywhere in this new utopia of ours is there are those out there who just you know they're clinging to their old ways and their these old traditions and they haven't embraced our new world order so if we can just get rid of them then we're going to be getting someplace isn't it funny how the worst dictators the world has seen always have to find some group to blame and to persecute rather than accept responsibility for their own failures. Mm -hmm. And the Antichrist is going to be the ultimate example of that. And who's he going to blame? He's going to blame Christians. Now, big question, Bo, if we're raptured, if we're out of there, where do the Christians come from? Where do they come from? No, no, (laughs) they're obviously going to get saved during this time. And and what we're going to find out in the book of Revelation is that Revelation uh, shows us the amazing mercy of God. There's going to be a lot of evangelism during this time. And if, if Revelation 6 is a sweep, if it is a sweep uh, of the whole narrative of the tribulation, and some people believe that. Mm-hmm. So chapter 6 might be a kind of a all-inclusive of like what's going to be happening during the tribulation period. Whether it is, whether it isn't, um, we certainly know from the rest of the book of Revelation that it is going to be a powerful time where we're going to see in chapter 7 where every uh, saints from every nation, tribe, tongue, yeah. every place will be around the throne of God. Yeah, I mean, and, 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 and the reason yeah. I bring this up, it's so important because there's people that will say, oh, man, you, you missed the rapture, man. You're done. You know, that's it. Toast, you know, Holy bro. Spirit's not there. <laughs> you know, you're toast. You're just the Antichrist is going to have his way with you. But one of the things we see in the book of Revelation over and over again is that God is going to use this time. We're sinned it abound, grace does much more abound. And we're going to see that literally people from every nation, kindred, tongue, and tribe are going to come to know the Lord in the tribulation period. How? Well, first of all, through the ministry, as we're going to see in Revelation chapter 7, 
of the Jewish people, the 144,000 that God is going to set aside that are going to have a worldwide impact. And that's an important point because uh, for, you, for you who have, aren't too familiar with the Old Testament, the Old Testament teaches that uh, Israel's greatest time would be um, like they would literally impact the whole world, that Israel would be the nation to impact the whole world with the message of Yahweh. That's what Israel would do. Arise, shine, for your light has come, right. Isaiah, what, 62 or yeah. something. And meaning, meaning, you know, Israel would finally do it, but they never did it. <laughs> Does that make sense? They never got there. But now what you're saying is that they're going to get there. They are going to get there. And yeah. the ones that aren't reached by the 144,000, we're told in Revelation 14 yeah. <laughs> that there's going to be an angel flying through mid-heaven, that is the atmosphere, yeah. uh, that is going to have an everlasting gospel oh, yeah. to preach mm -hmm. to everyone. So anyone the 144,000 don't reach, the, this, the angels are finally going to get into the act of, of preaching the gospel during this time. So, you know, there's going to be all kinds of people. And then there's two witnesses coming on the right. scene. Right. Yeah, and that's, right. that, that's another very powerful <laughs> thing. And, and they're going to be so effective that when the Antichrist finally rises up and kills them, they're going to have satanic Xmas. Uh, people are going to send presents to one another because these two prophets who tormented them so much are finally dead. But they're going to have this worldwide impact for the glory of God. So, you know, when people say, well, nobody's getting saved in the tribulation period, I beg to differ. There's mm -hmm. going to be all kinds of people are going to be saved. But here's the deal. Some people say, oh, well, great. Then I'll just wait for the tribulation. And then I'm going to know it's all true. I'll wait for that rapture to happen. And then I'll give my life to the Lord. Hey, that is a plan. I don't think it's a great plan. Uh, for one fundamental reason. If you can't live for Jesus in this age of grace, especially in our society and culture where you go, oh, a guy on, on late night TV said Christians were idiots. I feel so persecuted. I don't know if I can hang on any longer. You know, we, we, we think we're, 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 we're victims because of something as, as inconsequential as that. You know, how, if you can't stand for the Lord in a time like this, how in the world are you going to stand when it comes down to it, look, either take the mark of the beast and worship him, or we're going to decapitate you yeah. right now. That's what it says in Revelation 20, verse 4. Yeah. That you're going to get beheaded. Yeah. So, you know, here we see uh, these individuals who are going to come to Christ, but boy, they're going to pay for that faith in Christ. The Antichrist isn't just going to wipe out as... Zechariah chapter 12 says, two-thirds of the Jewish people. He's going to be going after Christians as well. And, and boy, you know, when we see the leaps and bounds technologically that we have as far as being able to identify people and track people and, and you know, hunt people down and so forth, it's going to be a lot easier than it used to be to have this campaign of eradication that's going on. And, you know, we've seen some of these Antichrist previews. Yeah. In, in the last hundred years or so. Yeah, back in Moses' day, when the Pharaoh wanted to kill all the firstborn of the Hebrew male children, he had to, like, ask the midwives to go and, like, hey, if there's a, you know, you guys yeah. go find out if, yeah. if, if a male's being born. You know, it, but you're so right today through the incredible technology that we have. You know, people know your every move. 
Yeah. They know it's happening. They know if you have a child. They know yeah, what- and it's so bizarre. You know, yeah. like I'll, I'll go online and, uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm interested in stand-up paddleboarding. I love to do that. You know, and, you know, I'll go on some website and suddenly there's an ad for stand-up paddleboarding that comes up. That's right. How do it know that I like to stand-up paddleboard? Yeah. Well, they've got all kinds of algorithms, and they, they follow what sites you go to and, and who you talk to and what shared interests you have. They know more about you. It's scary how much they know about you. you know, and the fact that we're carrying around, how many of you got a little black box with you <laughs> little right now? You brought your little black box friend along with you? There you go. They're, they're, they know exactly what you're up to these days. It's going to be incredibly simple to identify and eradicate people that aren't towing the party line. And, you know, again, when we see fear rather than faith taking over, we certainly see how people could say, these people that don't agree with me and who we follow, they're the problem. We need to get rid of them. You know, when I... and. Believe me, we very studiously here at Calvary Christian Fellowship, we don't take an anti-vax, pro-vax, whatever you want to do with your vaccine, that's between you and the Lord. But it's fascinating to me how we see just the venom that people will have over people that make a particular health decision one way or the other. The point where you start seeing people, you know, even people in prominent Howard Stern, the, uh, the shock jock, was saying, if you don't go out and get that vaccine, you ought to die because you're, you're threatening my life. Whoa, you know, where did that come from? Well, you think that's something. You ain't seen nothing yet. But we are seeing a preview of coming attractions. And you know, and it works obviously on both sides of these controversial issues and people point fingers and, and so on. But the bottom line is people will have to find a scapegoat. They have to find someone to blame. And that's why these individuals have been massacred. Not because they've broken any law, not because they were bad citizens, not because they were the problem, but because someone lied to people and said they are the problem, we got to get rid of them, and they did. Yeah, and what I find so neat about it is they held to the word of God in their, te- in, a, in their testimony. You know, they held to the word of God. You know, it's so hard. You know, Jesus said that, you know, in, yeah. in the latter days, you know, people will kill you thinking that they're doing God a favor. And it's interesting that an- the Antichrist will claim to be God. He will make that boast at some point in the tribulation. Well, in, after the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, he will do that. He'll make that boast. And people will side with him. People will be for him. And, you know, people during the tribulation, uh, uh, I have no doubt, will think that they're doing God yeah. a, a favor yeah. by eradicating people who simply are holding fast against the plutocracy or against the hegemony or against the powers that be, yeah. right? The power structures. Yeah, C.S. Lewis once said, there is no bad man like a religious bad man. Right. Right. Someone who's viciously, passionately uh, religious in, in, in his zeal. Yeah. You know? And, you know, and I think it's awesome that, you know, you know to, to stand up against it. There's something in me that kind of goes, yeah, 
you know, and it might be the punk music from when I was growing up, but there was some, <laughs> there's something that in me just goes like, you know, it's awesome that you stand for the word of God and that you look at the powers that be. Even in that day, these people go, you know, no, I'm not. And, and we've seen previews of this throughout the generations, even, even in my life. I mean, I remember walk, watching Christians lined up on a video where um, the Islamic, uh, uh, an Islamic group literally beheaded each one on the beach. He, they lined up all Christians on the beach, 25 men, I think it was. Yeah. And if you remember, it came out ISIS, like yeah. four years yeah. ago or yeah. something. Yeah. It was just a radical article. And, um, and, to, to, and the article, one of the articles was with a mom, uh, it, 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 the mom who saw her own son get beheaded on that beach. And she said, I praised God when they were cutting off my son's head because he kept the word of God mm. and the testimony. And I, mm. my heart just broke. I was just like, oh man, that is so awesome. Like the faith of that woman was just like, my husband's with Jesus. I mean, he didn't, he didn't die. He's alive. Right. You know? Right. And it was just a mind boggler. You yeah. Know? But think of that on a large scale. You know, so we see that there is a religion in this world already. And there has been, even, I hate to say it, but even in Christianity, yeah. there has been this idea of killing people for God. And the one thing that separates Christianity from the other religion is that we can look in our Bible and we can see where that was wrong. Right. Where the Christian church of the day was absolutely wrong. Does that make sense? Even though they claimed that they were harming people in the name of Jesus, you know, there was people that opened up the Bible and went like, no way, this is wrong. And they rebelled from the power church at that time right. of the yeah. world, you yeah. know, dark ages and stuff. But there is a religion that you can open up their scriptures and you can't quite find where it says it's wrong. And that's the scary part, yeah. is if everybody in that religion in, during the Antichrist reign and during his propaganda, you think the propaganda, you know, today is gnarly? Good slogans, that's what propaganda is, good slogans. They're going to have the greatest slogans, Yeah. you know, the Antichrist of that day. But these people hang in there. Yeah, they do. They're willing to yeah, cool. be slain for the word of God, for the testimony which they held. And you know, you just think, if you are that right on, you're that rock solid in your faith, you go all the way, you're, you're beheaded for the gospel of Jesus Christ, you would think that going into heaven, you'd be like, woohoo, you know, this is going to be great. <laughs> yeah. But look what they say in verse 10. They cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. You know, I, I can remember a time before I got saved where I thought, you know, the Bible was a book for little old ladies and people who didn't sleep well at night. It was a bunch of, you know, kind of panacea-like fairy tales. Uh, it just didn't have anything to do with reality. Imagine my shock when I finally started reading it, and I found out that the Bible was way, 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 way too real for me. 
you know, I was the one who needed to step up to reality. And this is another example of this. If the this was just fiction, this is just you know motivating people to follow a little church, and we're going to get this movement going, and and all of this. You've got these heroes, right? You would imagine they would be painted in such a way. Oh, it doth be so great to be home in heaven, here by the altar. Yea, we are rejoicing, and we think not on those things of the world any longer because we are so within you. Wouldn't you like to be like us? That's what you'd expect. But what do you get? You get something straight out of the stinking Psalms. Uh, if you're with us this weekend, uh, you know that we talked uh, a bit about God's timing and whether God's timing can be trusted or not. And we talked about Psalm 13 and verse 1 where King David starts with the word, How long, O Lord? Well, this is a quote from Psalm 13. They're not being unscriptural here. They're, they're really, in a sense, uh, going back to uh, the, the, the heart of, of Scripture. Psalm 13, verse 1, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? You know, you see these people who are in heaven saying, God, uh, no offense, glad we're here, but when are you going to judge these people who've treated us this way. How long till you avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And notice how God ministers to them. Then a white robe was given to each of them. And it was said they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were killed as they were, were completed. Now, how does God minister to their hearts? First, they're given a white robe at this point. Yeah, and what? that seems to be a theme in the book, right? Yeah. This white robe. Yeah. You know, what is the white robe all about? The righteous acts of the saints. Yeah. I know there's one area in the book of Revelation that talks about, you know, who are these arrayed in white? Yeah. You know, well, these are the ones, the, the whites, the righteous acts of the saints. Yeah. A, and a kind of a righteousness that they've been given. And, and there's a beautiful picture uh, of that gift in Isaiah 61, where it says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robes of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. Though they're crimson, they will be white like wool. You know, that, that, that picture that's involved there. But there's a, a trippy uh, insight into all this found in the book of Zechariah that I think really resonates with why at this point where they're going, hey, when are we going to get justice here? Yeah. Uh, and, and it's found in Zechariah chapter 3. It says... He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. By the way, the filthiness in the original Hebrew is really gross. It says, then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, take away the filthy garments from him. And he said to them, see, I've removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. 
And I said, let him put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. And, you know, and it goes on from here. It talks about, I will remove the iniquity of that land in a single day, and so on. That Joshua was this picture of the cleansing that God was going to provide for Israel and for Joshua, their high priest, although he didn't deserve it. How interesting that they would be given a white robe at that moment. Yeah. It, a reminder of yeah. why they were there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's so powerful because I think practically, you know, a lot of us feel like Joshua. A lot of us feel filthy, you know, and a lot of Christians live their life that way. Yeah. Where they're, where they're constantly with this conscience of being filthy. And you know what? It's like Satan, his number one aim is to show you the chink in your armor, man. You know, is to show you where you fail, where you, where he can cut you. You know, he shows you that chink in your armor, and he goes, ah, see how you are? See how filthy you are, man? You serve the king? Dude, you're such a mess. You're so filthy. Yeah, what a horrible hypocrite you are. If only people knew. Yeah, yeah. and I just love it that uh, here the, the angel rebukes Satan, right? The, or the yeah. Lord says, yeah. the Lord says to Satan, you know, the Lord rebuke you. And clothes Joshua with new garments. Right. And something that Joshua couldn't do. He stood before Satan guilty as charged. And we do too. We stand before Satan, the accuser of the brethren, guilty as charged. Yeah, we make it easy on him. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And, and yet, yet the Lord says to Satan, man, I just love the courtroom scene. Could you imagine this in a courtroom? Satan, you know, accusing you of your wrongs opening up the book and saying, okay, let's look at what, he, what Bo's done in his life before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Man, what's your, what, what's your book going to say? What's, gonna be, what's Satan going to you know, accuse you of before the Lord? That's, that's like a scary thought, man, Yeah. to know you're exposed like that. But notice what happens with this group, yeah. right? Yeah. They're there at the altar, yeah. the place where the blood flows, that, that's what justifies them. They say, how long till you avenge us? You know, God doesn't say, well, you know, you did such a great job. You know, you, you were faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life, and you've really kind of earned or deserved or merited this. No, he doesn't bring up any of that. He said, gives them a white robe, and it was said to them they should rest a little while longer. Now, notice the first thing that caused them to do the impossible, to forgive people that actually took their lives and probably the lives of their loved ones while they were looking on. The first thing was re remembering that they themselves were forgiven. And secondly, they were told to rest. In other words, God's got this. He's going to take care of it. It's all going to go down at just the right time. You know, one of the most liberating days, I think, in our walk with God is when the Lord finally writes on our hearts a very powerful truth. It's my job to judge them. It's your job to love them. And don't get the two confused. You know how I know when I get the two confused? The joy in my walk with the Lord drains right out of my life. 
instead of just the lightness and the excitement and the, the adventure, uh, you know, things just get heavy and they get religious and they get routine and, and, and dry and colorless. And, and it's like the Lord's way of going, what are you doing? You're doing something I never called you to do. You're carrying a burden you never were created to carry. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28? Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you something really heavy to carry. I'm going to ask you to forgive people even though you can't forgive people. Is that, is that what that's it? No, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke's easy and my burden is light. Now, I love this because this tells me something else about being able to do the impossible. I can't forgive the people that have hurt me deeply. I can't do it. It, it doesn't reside in me natively and naturally. I am a fallen son of Adam. I am one who believes the old adage, don't get mad, get even. Um, you're going to mess with me, you get the, you're going to take on the bull, you're going to get the horns. Yeah, there's a passage that says, nothing good in my flesh dwells. Yeah. And, and I have even, at one point in my life, I remember trying in my flesh to forgive some people that have really hurt me deeply. And, and, and I felt I was justified in how I looked at them and, and, and what they had done to me. And the more I tried to do the right thing, the worse it got, the more depressed I got, the more empty I got. And I realized something. I couldn't forgive them, but Jesus already did. Mm -hmm. And what I needed to do, and please hear this because this is going to save so much wear and tear in your soul. If you find yourself in that place where bitterness comes and knocks on your door on a semi-regular basis, you know how to do the religious thing and put on your halo and be godly around a place like this. I, I, I get all that. But in your quiet moments, you're just like, I just, ugh, you know, I just can't, I'll never. Here's what you do. You remember that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed not once, not twice, but three times, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he got to the point where he was sweating as it were great drops of blood. And then we're told an angel was sent to strengthen him. Now, if Jesus needed an angel to strengthen him, to be able to do what the Father called him to do at that moment in, in Gethsemane, to go forward and go to the cross, what makes us think that we, by knowing the right thing to do, and by golly, I'm going to forgive that person who's the last thing I do, you know, you know, put a little bit more elbow grease in our souls, try a little bit harder. What makes us think, if Jesus needed divine intervention in the Garden of Gethsemane to do what's right, what makes us think that we can do what's right in our own power and our own strength? Hmm. Instead of striving, we need to enter into the rest. We need to realize what Paul said in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. I myself no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And when we think of those people who've hurt us 
devastatingly, uh, uh, you know, unexcusably, uh, you know, you say, Scott, if I told you what these people have done or what they've said and, and all this, you know, it would curl your hair. I don't doubt it. But until we get to the place where we just say, okay, Lord, you already forgave them when you died on the cross. I am willing for you to forgive these people through me. I'll tell you, when I came to that point, I felt like a 100-pound weight went off my shoulders. And when I go back to that bitterness and the stuff comes up again and, 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 and all, and I start to feel the color drain out of my life, and I start to feel like everything's heavy, and I start to feel the depression coming back on again, I've discovered something. I have to say, okay, Lord, you love these people because I can't love them. You forgive these people. So I can't forgive them, but I'm willing for you to do that through me. Hmm. And every time I do that, Bo, every time I do that, gang, God takes the burden away. But when I don't, he don't. It's like he'll wait for me to get real tired and beat up and run down, find out, just say, are you done? Come back to me. Enter into my rest. You see, that's the secret here, that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren would be killed as they were. You know, not to criticize uh, the New King James Version or the translation here, but you'll notice the word number, the number there is in italics. It's not there. And when you take that out, there's kind of a different nuance here. It says, until both their fellow servants and their brethren would be killed as they were, were what was completed. In other words, what God is saying is, you guys are safe and home. You can rest in that. You can know I'm going to get things done. I'm going to do things the right way, the right minute, not a second too early. I'm the judge of all the earth. But I've still got to work I've got to do through these people down here because this tribulation is not over yet. And maybe, just maybe, there's going to be one more person who's going to come to know me down there before it's all said and done. Maybe, just maybe, your fellow brethren are still going to have more rewards that they're going to accrue for faithful service to me. So you relax. Realize I'm doing a, a work not just in you, but in others as well. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to, to complete it, right? Until the day of Christ Jesus. So here we see this, this incredible challenge. And, you know, next week as we get into chapter 12, or verse 12 of chapter 6, you know, it's really interesting how the sixth seal, this bombardment of Earth from space, if you will, where people at the end of it are just like the great day of the wrath of the Lamb is coming, who's able to stand, you know. It's almost like God was saying, you don't worry. You rest, you relax, you revel in my forgiveness and the reconciliation. You hang out at that altar you remember the things I've done for you. You know, you, 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 you enjoy the reconciliation that we have here. You, 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 you experience the release from all guilt and condemnation that I've given to you at this altar. You hang out there at the altar. That's what you do. And you just watch what I'm going to do to the people who got it coming. Because the judge of, the, of all the earth is going get, to get it right every time. And next week, we'll see in a very vivid way exactly what's coming to people 
who say no to God's forgiveness. So can you pray for us, buddy? Absolutely. Father, we give you glory. We thank you so much, Jesus, for your love for us, the demonstration uh, of love on the cross. Uh, we thank you so much for the power of the resurrection that you give us your Holy Spirit. We thank you for you ascending into heaven, uh, just uniting with us, with the body, uh, for all of eternity, uh, that you call us your brethren, and uh, we thank you for that. Uh, we just praise you, God. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this example of faithful people during the tribulation period. Father, help us to realize that you have a plan and a purpose, and you're doing a work, and that you will do a work even in the tribulation time, and there will be a wonderful revival that takes place, and people will give their life to Christ. And Help us, Father, during times of depression and bitterness and unforgiveness. Help us not be to become so narrow focused. Lord, help us to realize that you are doing a work in other things, other people, and you are bringing people to you. Help us understand the big picture as you have shared with this uh, amazing group in uh, before you, before your throne. And uh, Father, I, I do want to lift up those that uh, are struggling with unforgiveness. And, and I pray that they would just uh, bring it before you, that honesty, and say, uh, Father, I cannot forgive them. In my flesh, nothing good dwells. But Lord, I know that your Holy Spirit that resides in me can do that work of forgiving those people. And so, Lord, get me out of the way. Help me to decrease and that you, your spirit, increase in me to forgive those people in my life, those people that have hurt me deeply. And Lord, help me to commit them unto you, knowing that, Lord, you died for them as well. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.